If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, friends. Welcome aboard. Rob Rickenridge with you. Afternoons on 770 CHQR and what's turning out to be a very busy Wednesday afternoon. We have got a lot to get to on the program today. Of course, your calls at 403-974-8255. want to get right into our first topic here. And uh, this news just came down, in fact, just a few minutes before we're about to get into this story. Because I know a lot of people were holding their breath and watching, seeing what unfolded in Edmonton today. It was a parole board hearing for the man dubbed the Monster of Miramichi. Alan Legier, who is uh, about to turn 73 years uh, of age, responsible for five murders in Miramichi. Uh, Back in uh, the late 80s, he was convicted of one murder, sentenced to prison for that, managed to escape from prison, carried out four more murders, as well as a rape, several arsons. And he has been eligible to apply for day parole since 2012, full parole since 2015. So he applied for both and had his uh, chance today to make his case. And just moments ago, we learned that the Parole Board of Canada has refused both requests. So bit of a sigh of relief here, I, I think, for a lot of people. Someone who's been watching all of this very closely. Uh, is uh, Rick McLean. He's a journalism uh, professor at Holland College. He's a former editor at uh, the Miramichi uh, Leader newspaper. He's the co-author of two books on this case, uh, Terror, Murder and Panic in New Brunswick, and Terror's End, Alan Legere on Trial. Uh, Rick McLean, so great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Well, believe me, it's a pleasure at this moment. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that that news just came down a few minutes ago, so we're all just kind of digesting it now. But uh, like I say, a bit of a sigh of relief, I guess, isn't it? Uh, it's a very big sigh of relief. Uh, there's been sort of a whole community of us following it on Twitter accounts and bouncing things back and forth and posting stuff to Facebook. And you know, my wife's on the other on the other phone. I think she's called about ten people so far and woohooed with each one of them. Um, yeah. It's a huge it's a huge relief for people in this community. You know, it's this thing when we think of the worst of the worst and and people like this, we we sort of assume, I guess, or maybe it's more hope than assume, but that that they're not going to let these these guys out of prison. But you, you never know. And I mean, in this case, you know, he's 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 getting up there in age, and you know, it was certainly at least a, a possibility, I suppose, wasn't it, Rick? We didn't really know for sure going into today. Well, it, it's one of those cases where uh, if they said yes in any fashion, we would sort of instantly go to the worst case scenario. In the last time Alan Legere got out of prison, he was taken to a hospital in Moncton, New Brunswick, taken out of the prison in Renews near Miramichi and taken to Moncton, escaped, and then went on a rampage from May until November, beating four people to death, breaking into two other homes. Uh, they were obviously intended to be victims. In one case, the, the uh, elderly couple managed to escape. In the other, an elderly woman wasn't home, but he set a fire on her bed. Uh, so the body count could have been even worse. Uh, now, I've seen his handiwork up close because as part of the work 
on the books, I saw the photos of what it was like at the crime scene. It was hideous. You're talking about a psychopathic killer, a serial killer, uh, who only stopped killing the first time because he was in prison and immediately resumed killing as soon as he got out of prison. And the fear was that he would do exactly what he did last time, which is he would flee from authorities, he would come back to his hunting ground, Miramichi, and he would, to the extent that he could, resume uh, what his activities were the last time, which is terrorizing the community. Yeah, you, you, you think he's still a threat, don't you? Uh, there's no question. He's, he's a psychopathic uh, personality, which means that treatment doesn't really work. Uh, there are a very small subset of, of offenders for whom uh, psychological treatment actually just seems to give them an increased toolkit for deception. They learn new language. They learn how to say things better. Uh, I teach a course at the University of Prince Edward Island, and the last section of it is the ability of psychopaths as storytellers. And part of the reason they're so good at it is they realize very early in their life they're not like you and me. Instead, they understand they're different, and as far as they're concerned, they're superior. They consider things like kindness and love to be uh, weaknesses to be exploited, and they figure out very quickly that they have to disguise themselves so people will think they're like the rest of the community. They build a mask, and they support that mask through expert storytelling. They become expert liars. They practice their lies every day. They become experts at reading body language. They will tell you a lie and pay very close attention to what your reactions are, conscious and unconscious reactions, and they will retailer the lie until they sort of push the right knob and get the results that they want. And the fear has always been that he would get in front of a poll board and attempt to do that over again. Mm-hmm. Watching the Twitter feed today, it was obvious he was trying to do it. It was also obvious he wasn't very good at it. And really, uh, the, the telltale line for me was this one. If you don't mind, I'll just quote it to you. Yeah. He's asked, I'm wondering if you still think and are reminded in any way of the pain and the suffering of so many people. And his response is textbook from the psychology uh, textbooks to start. Yes, I understand that part there, he says. But then he says something he can't help himself that is completely psychopathic. It's it's a signature sentence. Why he doesn't understand, he says, why they can't forgive me, why they can't forget. Now think about that. He beat five people to death with his own hands and and his feet and his boots. And he can't understand why people can't forget it. That's how a psychopath thinks. Because you're not real to a psychopath. You're just a thing that they can use and they can control. And you're no longer of value. They just simply discourage you like an empty carton of milk. And that's what he's saying with that sentence. Why can't they just forget about these people? They're dead. They don't matter anymore. And of all the things, you know, I've got like three pages of these, uh, this material from Twitter because I'm going to use it in a class one day, I suppose. That's the sentence that sticks out of that thing. That tells you everything you need to know, that this is a person who can never be allowed back into the public because of what he is and what he would do. You know, when we think of the victims, I mean, obviously there's the five people that he murdered. Uh, but, but, you know, in a way, he really victimized the whole community. And, and the terror that people were living under, knowing that a convicted murder was at large, this was seven months that, that he was on this rampage. Can you, can you put into words, you know, the impact, the scars it left on, on the community? Well, to give you a sense of it, uh, I started receiving, I was looking for interviews a couple of days ago when the first rumors came out, because 
the parole board, nobody could seem to figure out what was happening and when it was going to happen, and nobody picked up on the on the uh, the public relations end of it. Uh, so I, I get the first phone call, and it was honestly, it was like 30 years ago, 31 years ago. Uh, back 30 years ago, people in the community were afraid to talk. Everybody was looking, reporters were looking for someone to interview. People wouldn't talk. And I ended up be, becoming the, the person of choice to go to because I would talk. And the reason I would talk is I was a newspaper editor. I couldn't, in good conscience, say no comment to another reporter. I just didn't think it was right. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the same spot now, it's exactly the same position for me. The number of people I've talked to in the community in the last few days, who you could see instantly, it was as if for them, I know it was for me, it was as if they'd taken all of these emotions from the manhunt and the terror for those, those seven months, whatever it was, in 1989, and we shoved the emotions in a box and taped over the box and threw it in the back of a closet and pretended it wasn't there. We knew the facts of the case, but we didn't talk about it a lot, and we never dealt with the emotion again. And then when I said yes to that first interview, I remember coming off of that phone call after saying yes and feeling like, what you, well, I, I, I went, what is it that I'm feeling? And I had to sit down and think about it. It's I opened the box, and everything is just completely fresh, as if it was yesterday. And it turns out everybody I talked to is in exactly the same boat. Everyone was in the same place. They didn't want to deal with this emotion again, and yet because there was a parole board hearing, which is mandated by law, they don't have any choice, uh, we had to go through it all over again. Yeah, and, and that's that's part of the harm of this process, and I get it's, it's the process, it's the law, but it, it reopens a lot of those wounds. Um, is this maybe you think the last we're going to hear of him, or does he have another, another opportunity at some point down the road? What, well, what do you what, think? What, uh, yeah. What the process is, he can appeal this, but realistically, um, I think that's just, you know, he's got nothing else to do, so he'll probably appeal it. But I don't think there's much chance of anything happening there. I think it's been made very clear that he is a danger to society, and every year that goes by is one year closer to him being too old to do anything, even if he wanted to. So from a community point of view, this is probably the worst of it. Um, I mean, it's interesting to note the law has changed since that time. Multiple murderers now, multiple killers face the possibility of what's known as a consecutive series of sentences. Right. Now, he was doing four terms of life 25, no chance of parole for 25 years, and his original one from 19, 1986 killing was life 18 years. So theoretically, if that had been committed today, he'd be doing, he could be doing, adding those all up, he could be doing life, no parole for 118 years. Yep. That sounds fine to me. Yep. I think, I think well, like, it, yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to understand... This isn't like most cases. Like, there are murders that are committed where there's a realistic opportunity to take decades, but that the person can come back into society and be functional. That's not what a psychopath is. With a psychopath, it's a life strategy, the behavior. And you could see it with what he was saying today and that, you know, that single line, why can't they forget? Yes, why can't we forget what he did to those two women? Why can't we forget what he did to the elderly shopkeeper, Annie Flam? Why can't we forget the horror of what he did in the rectory to the man, to the priest right next to my grandmother's house. You know, I, well, that's because we're normal human beings and we're not psychopathic. That's why we can't forget. But he doesn't right. understand that because he's a, a practically a different species of human. That this was done to him, that, that somehow in his mind he's able to twist all of this and, and make himself out to be a victim, which, as, as you say, I mean, I, I think it speaks to that, that mentality. 
And he actually tried to do that at one point. I don't have the clip right in front of me, but at one point he actually suggested that he was a victim. Another thing that was interesting is he denies uh, his responsibility. What he says is, yeah, I was there, but I didn't do the bad stuff. That's exactly the same argument he used in 1987 when he was first charged with murder. He said, first he denied he was there. I was in the courtroom that day. He said, I wasn't even there. And I turned and looked at the jury, and their faces said, we don't believe you. But he denied that he was there. He would later tell a reporter who helped co-author one of the books with me. He would later tell that reporter, I was there, but I didn't do any of the crazy stuff. It was the two teenagers who blamed it all on them. Uh, in point of fact, it was the other way around, that he went into the house and went berserk. He became a serial killer the moment he went into that first house. And he'd probably been fantasizing about the things that he did for years, and now this was his moment. And once he crossed that line, he was never going back. So it's, you know... It's a different situation with this particular kind of offender. You can't let them back into society. They never change. They never get better. And that's, in essence, in, in one form, what the parole board has said today, from what I've seen so far, is that you have shown no progress. Now, we're talking about someone who's been in prison for 30 years. You have shown no progress, no remorse, no accepting of responsibility for what you did. And that's after 30 years in prison. There's only one place that society is safe with this guy, and that's as long as he stays in the max security. Absolutely. And hopefully that's where he'll remain. Uh, Rick, we'll leave it there. Again, thank you so much for making some time for us here today, and I'm glad we had some good news to talk about at least, but uh, very much appreciate this. I'm glad I've spoken to you. Have a good day. All right. Take care. Uh, that is Rick McLean, uh, of course, as mentioned, former editor of the Miramichi uh, Leader newspaper uh, in Miramichi, and uh, so someone who lived through this, uh, along with uh, so many others. And, uh, yeah, you know, 30 years uh, on paper, it's a long time, but uh, you can imagine even just going through something like this, uh, that that would stick with you. And, and I think, you know, I mean, I can remember things that happened in 1990 or 1991, um, you know, that weren't traumatic, but, you know, you sit back and think, wow, was that 30 years ago? So it was 1989 when these four murders occurred. It was 1986 when the fifth, or I guess technically the first murder occurred. So he was serving a, a sentence. He was convicted and was serving a life sentence at that point, maximum security penitentiary. And it wasn't the prison he escaped from, as Rick mentioned. He, uh, I think it was some kind of an ear infection or some, some kind of an infection. So he was uh, taken to the hospital and somehow was able to, to convince whoever was guarding him that he needed to go to the washroom, but that he, he could go by himself into the washroom. And uh, he was able to escape. That led to this uh, horrifying seven months where he was at large. I mean, look, they, the police knew who they were looking for. This wasn't a case of a serial killer where the identity is a mystery. They knew who they were looking for, and he managed to kill four more people. So, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a serial killer. But there was just a real randomness to it. I mean, maybe you could, you could maybe more accurately call him a mass murderer. But uh, had he not been caught, surely he would have killed more. And uh, he's where he belongs. And it's unfortunate uh, that we didn't have the law we have now back then. Because for people like this, uh, look, they should die in prison. And the idea of having consecutive parole sentences, so four counts of first-degree murder, that's 25 each. Now you're at 100 on top of the 18 you already had. So it's not life in prison, apply for parole in 25 years. It's life in prison, uh, We'll talk to you in 118 years, which is to say you're going to die in prison. I got a text here, said, Rob, I'm originally from Miramichi. I lived through that reign of terror. 
This is great news that Alan Leger is not being released, as I am sure he would reoffend. I knew the priest and the store owner very well. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Wednesday afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our number. So hockey's back tonight. Uh, the NHL, that is. The NHL uh, kicks off its, uh, what is it, a 56-game season. And, of course, uh, this will be unusual beyond just that. Uh, the Canadian teams will play exclusively amongst one another over those 56 games. And, of course, there will not be any fans in the building. Whether that's still the case come May or June, I guess, remains to be seen. But the pros will get back at it. We just had the World Juniors, of course, uh, playing inside the bubble in Edmonton. Uh, but in, in terms of, of hockey being played, that's pretty much it for the moment. Here in Alberta, minor hockey remains uh, in a holding pattern. Uh, there was an attempt to, to get a season going, uh, you know, and for the most part, that, that happened until uh, around, I guess, uh, sometime in November. And hockey's been in a holding pattern ever since. So as the pros get back at it, there's a lot of questions about everybody else, from junior right on down to the uh, the tykes or the minimites or whatever we call them these days. And for a lot of minor hockey associations, talk is starting to shift to maybe we just uh, call it a season and, and come back in September. But that's a tough call to make. And, you know, it's tough on a lot of kids. It's not just hockey, mind you. You know, it's a, a lot of different kids' sports and kids' activities. But, uh, yeah, for minor hockey, it's been a tough season. I've been, I've been hearing some stories as well. And for some small towns, you know, the cost of keeping the arenas open and keeping the ice in place is becoming too much to bear. And so regardless of what the hockey associations decide, a lot of arenas or a lot of towns anyway are saying, you know, that's it. We, we got to turn the lights off, basically. So it's it's a tough situation. I know the kids watching their heroes on TV now. I mean, it's just going to be a reminder that they're not able to do what it is they love so dearly, at least not for now. Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome back to the program here this afternoon, Sean Fitzgerald. Uh, he's a senior writer with The Athletic, and he's uh, also the author of a, a great book about the state of minor hockey. It's called Before the Lights Go Out. Sean, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So it is a bit of a, a catch-22, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it seems almost unfair in a way that the pros get to play and, and basically nobody else does. But at the same time, we, we really want our, our NHL hockey, don't we? Well, I mean, that kind of remains to be seen in a certain way. I mean, yeah, you know, here in Ontario, we've entered a quasi-lockdown. I mean, really, yeah. it's only a lockdown in name, but I, that would be a much longer other segment. And I'd prefer it be on After Dark so I could use the appropriate language to describe it. <laughs> right. But, yeah, I mean, do we want it? I, I think there's certainly a buzz. I think certainly Roger Sportsnet, which holds the exclusive national broadcast rights, would like it, but I mean, you go back to you know the Stanley Cup final all the way into the fall, um, and and you know the Stanley Cup final numbers drew you know what was the rough equivalent of you know what the Edmonton Chicago play-in game drew in August. So the numbers were down, but again, was that because we're in a pandemic and people have other things on their mind? Is that because people aren't watching on conventional television, or, and this is the scary part? for NHL and people who make money off the NHL, um, including the broadcasters, um, are people maybe just preoccupied and not that interested in watching hockey? Yeah, and it might be a lot of those things combined. I mean, 
We've seen baseball make a go of it, and they had some bumps along the way. The NFL's had some bumps along the way in their season. Uh, we've we've seen some games postponed in the NBA just this week. So it's it's not easy to pull off. I mean, the NHL did a great job, uh, at least with their, their two bubbles. But this kind of an approach, it's it's a whole different beast, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's playing with fire at a gas station, basically. I mean, you know, depending where you are in Canada, um, and we don't have a team in the Maritimes, which seems like it might objectively be the safest place to yeah, be right probably. now in Canada. Um, I mean, you are not in a bubble. So you're traveling across Canada, which means you're not going to Texas or California or all these other places that, you know, Canadians made themselves feel smug about because their numbers were out of control and now ours I mean, I know there's been some good news in certain regions in Canada this week, but but still. Um, so you have them going across the country, but they're still traveling. They're still going to be on airplanes, charter. Uh, they're still going to be in hotels. Um, there's still going to be that opportunity to potentially face, you know, the world. Come across somebody who, who has uh, been infected and, and potentially who knows what that means. Like, they're not going to be in a bubble. They're going to be, you know, on their best behavior, certainly, yes. Following protocols, certainly, yes. Um, but it's not the same as a bubble. So, yeah, I think it stands to reason. We've already seen parts of it, you know, in, in Dallas and places where practices have been called off that you might see what we saw in the NFL, which is players, you know, testing positive, um, players being held out, coaches being held out, games being scrubbed, games being postponed. Um, in the NHL, you know, the way the schedule is lined up this year, that could make things pretty interesting. And there's the potential for some some backlash, I guess, as you alluded to. People maybe have mixed feelings about this. We we do, I think, deep down love the game of hockey and, and the NHL. But, you know, as we go through these various phases of restrictions and, you know, the perception that, well, I can't go to work or I can't go visit my loved ones and I'm stuck at home and these guys get to fly around the country and stay in hotels and, and play the game they love, it, it, it may seem like a double standard to a lot of people. So is that a risk for the NHL, that perception? I think so, um, and, and you've certainly seen it on social media, although we can also have another discussion about whether social media represents real life or not. Um, but, but folks wondering exactly that, that you know, in, in certain parts of this country right now, it's a crisis. It's a state of emergency. Um, and why are we having pro sports? And, you know, it's been said that pro sports are reward for a functioning society. And we're not a functioning society right now in a lot of respects. So, so why are we allowed to do this? Why are we allowing, you know, these seven teams to hopscotch across the country and play their strange Canadian division in a schedule that looks a lot more like a baseball series where you're, you're in town for two or three games against the same team and you, you hopscotch back? Why are we doing this? Well, the NHL, you know, thinks it can, you know, run and maybe make some money. Although Gary Bettman said it's cheaper to not play a season than it is to play a season. But... Regardless, they're they're playing a season. So, is there a double standard? Well, yes, they're professionals, and it's a multi-billion-dollar league. And you know, little Jenny's and little Jimmy's minor hockey don't generate that much directly. Right. So, yes, there is a double standard, but that's kind of always been the point. Yeah, and that's something that was interesting in Alberta. The, the Alberta government said that there's an exemption here that if, if minor hockey associations want to try to organize something, but it would basically be build your own bubble and quarantine players and get them tested. And obviously, 
no minor hockey associations in a position to do that. You know, even the elite uh, level AAA leagues, that just wasn't an option. So uh, hockey's basically on hold for all intents and purposes. I don't know what it's like in, in the Maritimes right now, but, um, you know, here in Alberta, they are I suspect still playing. You they are, are still playing in, in really? parts, of the, parts of the Atlantic Canada. They're still playing. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but the right. kids are on the ice. Um, here in Toronto, um, because it is Toronto, um, all the indoor arenas are closed, and you have to book slots through an online portal to skate at one of the city's outdoor rinks. You have to book a time to go skate at an outdoor right. rink, and you're allowed 45 minutes per time. And each time opens up seven days in advance, and parents are scrambling at 8 a.m. every day to book a 45-minute slot at an outdoor rink seven days later. So where does that leave the game of hockey <laughs> outside of the, the professional world? I mean, is there a season to be salvaged at this point? I mean, we keep getting notifications from our minor hockey association that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We're hoping to push the season back maybe to April or May. But I guess at a certain point, I mean, is, is it worth it? I think it'll go region by region. Certainly regions that haven't been hit as hard as, you know, Alberta, Quebec. Um, Ontario, um, you know, certainly more remote regions, you can look at maybe, you know, different ways of getting back to play. I think the areas where it's been hit, where you've had, you know, runaway problems, where you have medical professionals saying, you know, our ICUs are at the risk of being overrun. I think you can effectively put a fork in the minor hockey season. It just cannot be done safely and effectively. I think that, you know, what a lot of minor hockey administrators are doing right now are starting to look to September and October. Because, you know, the, the sad reality of living in this pandemic is that, you know, even next season is going to be impacted uh, by, by this virus. That, you know, October, you'd love to say, well, hockey's going to be back and everybody's going to be, have their shot in the arm and everything will be back to normal. Well, no. Um, the kids are going to be the last ones to get vaccinated for this. So you might be looking at maybe a best-case scenario, uh, normal hockey, quote-unquote, maybe not returning until January 2022. You know, and, and, and we've talked about this before, and you write it about it in, in your book. I mean, just kind of the precarious state minor hockey's been in. And, you know, this, I, I would imagine, is going to have a big impact that for kids who went into the season kind of excited and just, you know, that there's no hockey, they've had to find other things to do, and the season, if it does end up getting canceled, do, do you think that's, I mean, is that the kind of thing that is going to drive even more people away? Or what, what do you see as the impact? This is a really fascinating conversation. Um, so this, this shutdown should, I think, on top of all the other things that minor hockey administrators across the country have to contend with, which is unprecedented shutdown of their game, um, this is also a potential, if you want to be optimistic, for reinvention, for stepping back and saying, where are the cracks in the system? What are the fissures? What are the tensions? Um, where, are the, where are the holes where we're losing kids? Um, where are the barriers that are preventing um, kids and communities from coming into the rink? And when we restart, how can we come back stronger? What are the best practices we can absorb from, from communities that have found success um, in you know, breaking down some of those barriers and closing some of those holes and, and get going again? That's the optimistic take. Um, if you want to look and maybe a bit more pessimistically, you can take a look in terms of the future of the game and say that, you know, we've now had, you know, by the time kids get back on the ice in some regions, they'll have been off for more than a year. So over the course of a year, kids change. It's the annoying thing about kids. You have to keep buying the new shoes and clothes because they keep growing. Um, maybe over that time, they found out that 
you know what, they don't really miss hockey, that they really like riding their bike or, you know, running outside or doing other things. And families have found that, you know, for all of the challenges and for everything that is just abject misery for living in this pandemic, that maybe not running around five days a week to different rinks on all corners of town, (laughs) you don't miss that and you don't come back. And that these registration drops that people were predicting uh, for a season up to 25%, maybe those do come to fruition. And maybe there is a really significant reckoning for everything that we've been talking about, about the ails of minor hockey in this country when registration comes back. There are those levels that are not quite professional, but, um, you know, above, I guess, what we consider sort of, you know, run-of-the-mill minor hockey, right? I mean, the junior leagues, the sort of elites, Bantam and, and Midget, are you 18, 15, what we're calling them now? Uh, you know, I mean, you'd have 14-year-olds who are being scouted and drafted by uh, junior teams, right? And, uh, you know, those, the young players are being scouted by colleges. And, you know, it, that that's all up in the air, right, isn't it? I mean, the uh, big junior leagues in Canada, it's unclear what they're going to be able to pull off in terms of a season. I don't know. It's going to impact the the junior draft this year and all these 14-year-olds who would normally be uh, scouted and, and all of that. How do, you, how do you see it impacting that, that sort of, you know, the 14 to 18-year-olds at that level? Again, this is another, if you want to be optimistic about it, another crossroads. And if you want to be optimistic, the crossroads for change could be that you know, uh, in the NHL and in junior hockey, WHL, QMJHL, and the OHL, they find this a way to, to maybe make the next draft a double cohort. Um, and they use it as a, as a mechanism that some people have been advocating for um, to move the draft age up. Excuse me, so that, you know, in junior hockey, maybe it is 15, 16. Um, and in, in the NHL, maybe you move it up from 18 to 19. Um, so that, you know, evaluators... Um, can, can pick kids that, that might be more fully formed and that might drive more value to teams at the NHL level because, you know, there's a big change between the ages of 18 and 19. Um, and then at the junior level, yeah, you might not have to have kids who are 14, 15 years old moving away from home and living with a billet family and that extra year of development can be, can be huge. So if you want to be, you know, optimistic, maybe that's an agent for change. If you want to be pessimistic, you can just throw your hands up and say, I have no idea what's going to happen now. everything seems to be on the table yeah that's that's kind of the narrative these days i think sean we'll leave it there always great chatting with you thanks so much for making some time for us here today thanks so much be well be safe we'll talk down the road sounds good that's uh sean fitzgerald he's senior writer for the athletic and uh his book on the state of minor hockey in canada which was written pre-pandemic mind you it's called before the lights go out and yeah you do wonder what the impact of all of this is you know on the game itself and various aspects of the game and you know, just on, on kids, right? And then their well-being, their mental health, their socialization, right? And it's part of the case for getting kids back to school. And again, again, not to act as though hockey's the, the be-all and end-all, right? Because it applies to all kinds of different kids' sports and activities. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a busy Wednesday afternoon. Well, some time for your calls coming up in this hour, 403-974-8255 is the number, 974-TALK. Uh, we are also going to get an update 3.30 this afternoon from Dr. Dean Hinshaw, Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health. So a lot of questions about, um, you know, are we on the right path here? Are we going to see these uh, restrictions that were announced back on December 9th eased next week? January 21st has been talked about as maybe a possible uh, end to some of this, but uh, it's it's all up in the air. So, sure, I mean, it, there, there's certainly been some building frustration. I know there was some hope that maybe January 11th 
we uh, might have seen an easing of some of those restrictions, but uh, as the Premier laid out earlier this week, that that wasn't going to be the case. We're, we're not at that point yet. So yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty that a lot of businesses are dealing with, especially those that have been forced to close. We talked yesterday to the Alberta Chambers of Commerce, and um, they've been pleading with the province to figure out a way to allow certain kinds of businesses that are currently closed, hair salons, tattoo parlors, etc., uh, to safely reopen. You know, the province was willing to work with massage therapists, for example, and uh, figure out a way for them to safely reopen, and, and maybe the same could be done here. So no word yet in terms of whether the province is prepared to do that, but some businesses aren't waiting. And we've heard uh, anecdotally about a handful of situations across the province where businesses have just decided to open their doors. And that includes a, a hair salon in Innisvale. Uh, which decided to uh, open their doors. And uh, they've been, uh, I think at this point, I don't know if they've been fined yet. I know they were visited by, reprimanded by health officials. Saw the story today that this uh, barbershop or this hair salon has decided that they're going to uh, rebrand as a pet grooming shop in a way to try to get around some of these health restrictions. And sure, I mean, look, again, they're, they're facing all kinds of financial pressure, not being able to operate as a business. The situation in Innisfail, though, has had some political spillover and debate about how town council should respond, whether town council should support this business. Uh, one town councillor has decided that he is going to resign from council. Uh, Innisfail businessman uh, Glenn Carrot is also running for mayor uh, of Innisfail later this year and is now, as of yesterday, a former town councillor. He joins us on the line here this afternoon to talk a bit more about the situation there. Uh, Glenn, thanks for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a bit about how you viewed this whole situation. Obviously, uh, the town didn't impose these rules. The province did. But but why did you feel it was uh, the right thing to do to, to resign from town council? You know, I just felt compelled to really support this this young lady that's trying to survive. And, uh, you know, it's it's so unfortunate that right now we have to decide between survival and illegal. It's where, you know, we're in unprecedented times for for these small businesses, and they've gone through every precaution to to stay open and do it safely and operate safely. And, you know, a couple of town councillors uh, felt that I was breaching a code of conduct and, and that they suggested I step down. And really, at, at that point, I had merely put on Facebook that I support this young lady. I, I don't support uh, people doing anything illegal. That's That really, at the end of the day, is on her. Um, you know, I do obviously follow the, the rule of the law and... Uh, you know, I just felt that, that our council is a little bit, uh, well, quite a bit disconnected at that point. And, and for whatever reason, right, wrong, or otherwise, uh, there seems to be uh, a little bit of animosity within our, our council. And I felt at this time, it's better for our town, for myself, to step down and continue to run for mayor as uh, we can look at revamping in the future. But, but in terms then of, of the fact that you spoke out about this, was, was it a case of the town or the town council, elected officials, preferring to just be neutral in this, preferring to stay out of this? And so was it felt then that, that you ran afoul of all of that by, by speaking out on it? Or what, what was the disconnect there? Uh, the, the disconnect was they, you know, they didn't want to support. Uh, they, were, they were quite discouraged that I even st- stood up and, and made a statement that I do support small business that, uh, you know, there was a feeling of that they didn't feel that, that I'm supporting, that they all support small business as well. But my uh, my opinion on that is, is a gov- in government, if we don't have 
the ability to speak for the people and say that we support something. You know, we don't always have to agree, agree on everything, but we have to have open dialogue and be able to support what we believe in, especially in, in any community at municipal government. So when you say support, in, in this context, what do you mean by support? I support that she needs to make a living and that she needs to, doesn't have to, shouldn't have to choose between survival and doing something illegal. Again, I don't, I don't support that, that she have to, has to do something illegal. I don't support anybody doing anything illegal, but we need to look at the hard facts here. We need to look that they can operate so- safely. And, uh, you know, that needs to get put back on Premier Kenny that there's, there's so much hypocrisy going around with, you know, political staffers obviously flying her all over the world and now NHL opening up and, you know, and then we can't even play hockey outside. There's, there's just, and in, then in BC, the, you know, the uh, beauty salons are open, churches are closed, here churches are open, beauty salons are closed. There's, you know, there's no consistency. We need a little consistency moving forward with, uh, with being safe and, and getting through this. Right, but I think there's a difference in, in supporting the idea that, that hair salons could or should reopen with precautions in place versus supporting the idea of defying the health restrictions, right? I mean, do you see the distinction there? I totally, uh, totally understand the distinction. And, and, uh, and I had this conversation with Natalie, and, and she's full aware that uh, it was on her that, that she, you know, is going against the, the regulations, but she has to uh, survive. I mean, listen, Rob, she's got a, she's got a seven-year-old boy that's, that's talking about ending his life. And this is a crisis. This is a huge crisis that we have right now. Opioid deaths are going through the roof. Suicides going through the roof. We really need to look at the other side of this. And my question back to everybody is, what would you want her to do? What, what's, the, what's the answer for this young lady that's got, got uh, three boys, three young boys, and a family that she's trying to feed? Well, yeah, and I mean, a lot of people are in that situation, I, and, and yeah. it's, it's not a good thing. I mean, the problem here, and I mean, if we talk about double standards, is, is that to say that you are open to any business uh, deciding that they, they can't survive under the current circumstances, they're going to defy these health restrictions. If restaurants in Innisfail decide uh, they're opening up and they're going to seat people and have indoor dining, I mean, are, are you going to support that too? I, I would, because I, you know what, if they can do it safely... There's, uh, we need, you know, we need to have a coalition. We need to get to the, to the premier and, and people have wrote letters and, and we've, you know, there's been rallies, there's been all kinds of things to, to try and do it the, you know, the diplomatic way. And, and at some point, and what, and where is that point? And for this young lady, this was the breaking point that, that she decided she had to fight back. So yeah, if, if there's restaurants and, and families that decide that they, but they can operate safely, we, you know, we all know. That, uh, that we have to do things properly and, and stop changing the goalposts on us. Stop changing the date. You know, we, uh, we need to look at the hard facts of the numbers. There hasn't been one case come out of any uh, barber shop or hair salon. So it just, there's, there's no, there's no uh, rhyme or reason why that should be this way. Do you consider this civil disobedience, and do you support civil disobedience? No, of course I don't. Dis- I don't support civil disobedience. And uh, again, I'm I'm a guy that's supporting supporting her making a living. I'm not the one breaking. It's not my business. I I would have to make that choice for myself if if that was the case. But uh, you know, I'm I'm there to support her because she needs to earn a living. That's 
and it's and again our, our rights are being taken away we need to look at the constitution we need to look at the bigger picture of this but do you consider it to be civil disobedience well i consider it to be her her making a choice between survival and breaking a law and at some point you, you, she has to make that choice you know we need to we need to look at we need to look at the other side of this we need to look in at Innisfail and start getting some team building and start uh, the, the town has been very div- divided as much as the same as other very any other towns Calgary included and you know we need leadership and we need people in there that are going to look at the other side of this and and get people back together and start being a united country Rebel Glenn, we'll see what happens uh, with all this. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks, Rob. I appreciate it. All right, take care. Uh, that is Glenn Carrot. He's a businessman uh, himself in Innisfail. He was on town council uh, as of yesterday, no longer is, uh, but is running to be mayor. And, you know, look, there, there may be um, that political element in all of this in terms of how the folks in, in Innisfail are feeling about it. Look, again, I, we talked about it yesterday. Uh, I'm open to the idea that we can figure out ways for hair salons or tattoo parlors uh, to operate safely. And, and hopefully the province is considering that. As it stands, the, there are rules in place. So I, I think it is fair to call what's happening uh, with businesses that are defying these health restrictions civil disobedience. And, and, you know, and that's fine. Maybe, you know, look, we, we saw it a year ago with a lot of these uh, rail blockades. That was civil disobedience. It's like, well, you're not supposed to be there. You're breaking the law. Well, we've got an important point to make. And there are all kinds of different opinions about that. I suppose to, to everybody, if you feel there's a certain cause that is important enough that, that it's, it justifies breaking the law or the rules that are in place, then you can make that argument. I think at times we can be very selective, though, in how we feel about civil disobedience. And so the answer is going to depend in a lot of cases on what the cause is. This is an example where I think a lot of people are just against these restrictions to begin with. So the idea that somebody's breaking what you feel is a stupid or a pointless or an unjust law, that's going to shape how you feel. All right, welcome back. Rob Ridge with you. Look, I mean, this is supposed to be a year where things get better. <laughs> And uh, that applies to a lot of things. Maybe we're not seeing it yet. But look, there are reasons to be generally optimistic uh, about what's coming this year. And uh, the position will be at, you know, come December of this year as opposed to December of 2020. You know, vaccines, for example, and and the whole pandemic situation. But uh, more specifically, too, is there reason for optimism when it comes to oil and gas? It's been a rough, not just a rough year, but a rough few years uh, for Canada's and in particular Alberta's uh, oil and gas industry. Uh, interesting bit on, on the uh, wires today. Uh, Canada's main stock index uh, rose, uh, helped by gains in energy stocks as oil prices hit an 11 month high on tighter supply in hopes of a drop in U.S. stockpile. Um, so, a little bit of optimism uh, on the markets that uh, things are, are starting to trend in the right direction. And some new numbers out today from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, uh, I think, adds to that optimism. And this is the forecast for upstream spending investment uh, for 2021. The Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers forecasting a 14% increase in upstream natural gas and oil investment in 2021. That represents about $3 billion, just over $3 billion in additional investment. 
uh, for this coming year. So that certainly bodes well for some recovery. Joining us to talk more about all of this is Tim McMillan. He is president and CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. Uh, Tim, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Ah, thank you. Good afternoon. So I don't know. I mean, how, how bullish are you? How bullish should we be about what this year might have in store, given you know how difficult the last few years have been? You know, obviously a prediction is, uh, is just a point in time, and you never right. know what will happen. Last year we had a black swan event with COVID that uh, no one foresaw. Yeah. But I think what we're putting forward today, uh, it certainly is based on the fundamentals. Um, it is $3 billion, which is a substantial investment into the Canadian economy, or increased investment. But um, it is starting from a number that I don't think any of us are satisfied with, just $24 billion last year. Uh, we want to see it grow this year by three, but we think that there's a lot of upside and potential to continue to grow past that in the years ahead. Yeah, and just to put it in context, I mean, 2014, before we really started to see the, the uh, crash in prices and everything else, uh, there was about, what, just over $80 billion in investments, uh, you know, yeah, seven years right. ago, right? That's right. So we're, we're, we're still a ways from that, but at least things do seem to be trending upward in the right direction. Yeah, and the fundamentals, global demand in the past few years has continued to grow to record levels. Uh, COVID knocked some of that demand out, but we've seen even post- the first lockdown, global demand bounced back up over 90% uh, of record. And uh, International Energy Agency has a continued growth for both oil and gas out in years ahead. And if anything, the last few tough years in Canada, while other countries were attack attracting increased investment and we were continuing to tighten our belts, find efficiency and lower costs, may position us a little bit ahead in, uh, in the recapitalization in the months ahead of us right now. So what's what's driving the increase? What, what are the circumstances uh, in in terms of you know why why there's maybe a little more willingness to invest and and where are we expected to see that? So I, I don't think we should underestimate the damage that was done to the economy as a whole, to the financial systems, to the lenders. So we're pushing against a pretty tough tide, um, but but there is a need for energy and uh, global demand is increasing are bouncing back uh, fairly quickly. We see the price of oil up over $50. The price of gas has actually sustained itself quite well in the last few months, and Asian gas prices are quite high. So the fundamentals are solid. And as I said a moment ago, I think that Canada's restraint, budget uh, management, and efficiencies that we've really worked on for the last five years may position us well. And we've got three pipelines under construction um, and an LNG facility under construction, that would have yeah. been considered very optimistic if someone said three yeah. years ago we would have that in place today. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think there's still reason to be optimistic about uh, Trans Mountain. Things are, are progressing there, even the Line 3 project. I, I guess that third one is is facing a bit of uncertainty, isn't it, the Keystone XL? Yeah, I, uh, for sure that uh, transition in in the U.S. is something that we are working on, our governments are working on, um, and we should take nothing for granted. It is a project that we believe makes sense, not just for Canada, but for the U.S. as well. And, you know, there are going to be other geopolitical situations. What we saw between Russia and Saudi Arabia last year had a huge effect on us. So it's not just the U.S., but that is certainly one that we need to watch. 
So as you say, I mean, you know, there, there are some changing circumstances globally and, and, you know, the supply demand imbalance starting to correct itself. So that's going to help here. But I mean, you alluded to it that, that we have taken some steps then, haven't we, to try to to make ourselves more competitive, to try to encourage investment and development. Are, are we seeing a lot of progress on that side? You know, I think corporately, each company that uh, is operating today has gone through uh, a large process to make themselves more efficient, to streamline, to focus. Uh, We've seen mergers, we've seen acquisitions, and uh, we may still see more of that uh, in the months ahead. And I think that that positions us maybe a little stronger than other jurisdictions, even the U.S. They were growing while we were doing the efficiency work in the last couple of years. So, yeah, I think that uh, we may have some some runway for success in the months and years ahead. We need to continue to focus on those efficiencies and on our regulatory system to make sure that it's as efficient as it can be. Well, more details at uh, cap.ca, C-A-P-P, of course. Uh, Tim, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, you as well. That's Tim McMillan. He is uh, president and CEO of the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. So, again, I mean, you know, it's hard to know what the future holds. And obviously, you know, COVID hit us. We didn't see that coming. So... uh, You never know what 2021 might have in store, but uh, at least as it stands now, there are a lot of reasons to be optimism, uh, optimistic, that is, a lot of reasons for optimism. Uh, in terms of, you know, vaccinations making a big difference, in terms of uh, easing the pandemic, again, making progress there. Maybe it's slow progress, but it's progress nonetheless. And that, of course, is, is going to lead to higher economic activity, as Cap points out, increased energy demand. So that all bodes well. Again, talk about uh, some of what we've been able to do uh, even here in Alberta, uh, but in Canada, to to try to encourage development, encourage certain projects. And obviously, we get the pipeline projects, two of which for sure are moving in the right direction, hopefully still the third, not to mention uh, the Coastal Gasoline Pipeline and the whole LNG Canada project. So that's going uh, forward, too. So we're not where we were before by any stretch. But things seem to be trending in the right direction. So uh, this forecast estimating an increase of just over $3 billion in um, capital investment this year. So that that's a sign of some recovery. Still a ways to go, but at least it's going in the right direction, right? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.